This month, we're unzipping the genes in your head. We'll be finding out if there are genes that can help make for an extremely high IQ. Plus, we'll be finding out if our DNA may pave the way for developing Alzheimer's. And if so, if there's anything that we can do to help protect ourselves. Plus, this month, we'll be tackling the news, finding out if we can exercise our memories whilst having a nap. And we'll be uncovering a link between obesity and optimism. This is the Naked Neuroscience Podcast with me, Hannah Critchlow, brought to you in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. First up, imagine your brain is being bombarded by information coming in through all of your senses, including hearing. You start hearing voices that other people can't. You can't filter them out. Your brain does its job and tries to make sense of them, tries to rationalise them. My thoughts accuse me of being someone that I don't want to be. They tell me that I love someone else instead of my wife. They are all looking at me. You're not sleeping. Your thoughts become more and more disorganised and confused. Your perception of the world around you has changed. You don't want to socialise as much, and the voices escalate and amplify, becoming more frequent and more insistent. Hallucinations, hearing things that aren't really there. You start to experience delusions as a result, strong beliefs in something that may not be true, causing you to act in a particular way. I thought they were, were trying to kill me, and so I ran away with my four-year-old son. That was students at the local mental health charity Squeakygate speaking about their experiences. We'll be finding out about the genetics and brain biology of schizophrenia, a thought disorder that affects one in every hundred people worldwide. In order to do this, I visited Edinburgh University to talk to Cathy and Stephen. Cathy was diagnosed with schizophrenia over 30 years ago. It can be a debilitating disorder. 40% of patients will attempt suicide and up to 10% of them succeed. These shocking statistics indicate that the medications currently on offer are not effective for every person, and it's difficult to know which medication to put which patient on. So more research is desperately required in this field. Cathy now volunteers for studies with Stephen Laurie, Professor and Head of Psychiatry at Edinburgh University. They are trying to find out more about schizophrenia to help improve treatments for the future. Cathy speaks with Stephen about her condition. Hello. This is uh, my side. As a patient, I actually had to be told, you are ill. I wouldn't have known I was ill. It took up to the age of 24, from the age of 18, to be told it was a schizophrenic illness. And even then, the psychiatrist diagnosed it. They're just looking into my case and they'll give you that label because it helps the medical students and that to understand that it's just a survey case. I very rarely recall it, but when the voices first started to talk to me, they were accentless and they were penetrating my eardrum Mm -hmm. and I was gut sick with fear. That is why I was put on medicine... Shall we talk about the voices a little bit? Because yes. they're probably quite interesting for people to hear about. Yes. And what sort of things do they say to you? Well, they, they give me a, an insight into just what humanity is all about. 
I am getting guided by voices. The UFOs got in touch with me. It was in the presence of a human form and they were talking to me in my room for up to four months before I was admitted to the Royal Aid. Mm-hmm. We suspected uh, mental illness. Because I hear them and nobody else does. What does that mean? I'm not imagining it. I've gone medication and I take the medication and I still hear the voices. The medication does stop the voice from penetrating my eardrum to a point which is discomfort Mm. and the voices go along with us. That was Stephen finding out from Cathy her experiences of schizophrenia and the difficulties she had getting diagnosed and finding the correct treatment over the last 30 years. And we'll be speaking with Professor Stephen Laurie again shortly to discover what his research has told us so far. But first, I go in search of a genetic contribution to schizophrenia. I met with Professor David Porteous from Edinburgh University, who tells me about some of his work unravelling the role of genes in this disorder. Some years ago, in fact in 2000, just at the turn of the century, we were able to report that we'd identified a very unusual uh, new gene, gene that we knew nothing about before, that when it was damaged led to a very high probability that individuals inheriting that damaged version of gene would develop a number of different possible types of psychiatric illness. So some of the individuals within the same family developed schizophrenia, some bipolar disorder, and others a recurrent form of major depression. And what were the percentage risks for developing these psychiatric disorders then with this gene change? About two-thirds of the individuals carrying the gene change developed a profound, clinically important psychiatric disorder, but a third didn't. Now, that's quite interesting in itself. It reminds us that it's not all to do with the genes, It reminds us also, though, that genes are important, and not just for a particular type of psychiatric illness, but perhaps for a spectrum of illness. How might we understand that? Well, perhaps that's just chance, but perhaps more scientifically, it's because there are other genes that are affecting whether or not you develop a very severe form of illness like schizophrenia or a milder form like depression. The other things that we have to take into account is that each individual is an individual with different life experiences, with different life exposures, and that that could also influence how a liability to a major mental illness actually develops over the life course. So what's the role of this gene that you're working on? What does it do within the brain? Well, that's a really interesting and very difficult question to answer because we're actually still working out exactly what it does. But the thing that's very exciting about this particular gene, which we call disrupted in schizophrenia, because that's what we've observed, is that it encodes for a protein, a building block in the brain, but that protein works with lots of other proteins in a, in a way that it sticks them together and forms what we call functional complexes. And what those complexes do is help to determine how the brain develops in the very early stages of life, but also how the brain signals one neuron to another later on in life. So it's got this double feature to it. First, it it is important in how the brain develops. And second, it's important in how cells within the brain, the neurons, signal one to another in adults. 
And so schizophrenia has a neurodevelopmental origin, is that what you're saying? And it's also there's some problem with communication from one nerve cell to another. That's a very good way of summarising it. Yes, indeed. We have this notion that uh, individuals at risk of schizophrenia are born with that risk, but actually the signs and symptoms tend not to develop until late adolescence and early adulthood. And so they, they have a predisposition which is what we call neurodevelopmental in nature. Our hypothesis is that there are changes going on in the brain very early in life, but they're not manifest until later in life, and crucially at and around the time of adolescence and early adulthood. Um, And we have to try and explain that. And we think that in the discovery of this gene DISC-1 and all the things that it does and regulates, that we've got a way to explain that. And you mentioned that families that have a history of DISC-1 disruption in their genes, two-thirds of them will then go on to show some signs of psychiatric disorder. But how many people with schizophrenia actually have this change in DISC-1? The answer to that is actually remarkably few. And that's been a bit of a puzzle, and it's why some people have asked the question, well, how important is all of this? And I think there are two answers to that. Um, One answer is actually when you look at DISC-1 alone, it perhaps only explains a small percentage of schizophrenia. But when you look at the proteins, the other building blocks of the brain, the other signaling components of the brain that are influenced by DISC-1, then the list gets much longer. And we've done some studies to suggest that perhaps as much as 5% of all of the risk of schizophrenia could be ascribed either directly or indirectly to DISC-1. So when we think that 1% of the world population have a lifetime risk of schizophrenia, and we think that perhaps 5% of that 1% might be due to this one gene, that is a very, very large number of individuals. It's more than that, of course, because this gene not only influences the risk of schizophrenia, but also of bipolar disorder and of major depression. Now, major depression carries about a lifetime risk of about one in six. So we're talking about a very profound, potentially a very profound influence on the risk of developing these illnesses in a very large number of individuals. That was Professor David Porteous from Edinburgh University, speaking about how genetic studies are telling us more about what's happening in the brain to give rise to schizophrenia. These findings may be of help for patients in the future, so they won't have to wait so long to get the right diagnosis and treatments as Cathy did. We now return to Professor Stephen Laurie, who describes what his studies with Cathy have helped to tell us so far. The research that we and other groups are doing has, for example, shown that we can predict schizophrenia in those at high genetic risk because they come from multiply affected families two or three years before people get the condition because of changes in brain structure, reductions in the volume of particularly parts of the temporal lobe two or three years before onset. In terms of distinguishing features of schizophrenia versus bipolar disorder, there looks like there might be simple differences in the volume of a structure called the amygdala, which is an almond-shaped structure at the front of your temporal lobe. But there are probably even more striking differences in terms of the appearances one gets on functional MRI When one asks people to do a task in a scanner, you can get a variety of different patterns of blood flow in the two different conditions that look very promising in terms of being able 
to tease the conditions apart. Of course, what you really want to be able to do is to use that kind of information to predict treatment response. Who would need treatment? Who's going to get better anyway? Who would need a particular type of treatment? And that work is really just getting started now. How sensitive are your techniques at the moment, particularly for differentiating between the different disorders of schizophrenia and bipolar? They're about 70 to 80% powerful in terms of being able to predict whether an individual is going to go on to get schizophrenia or in distinguishing groups of people with schizophrenia from groups of people with bipolar disorder. So, given that we do seem to be getting there in terms of identifying scientific markers or biological markers for psychiatry, should these markers, these genes that David Porteous was talking about, or the brain structure and activity changes that Stephen was talking about, or perhaps a combination of them all, should they be used to help screen people and start treating them even before they develop symptoms? It's a question that's come into play for breast cancer screening here in the UK recently, and we discuss the ethical implications for this for psychiatry with David Porteous, getting his thoughts on the topic. You're asking a, a question that often comes up, and I'm actually rather on the side against this kind of approach, even though I am very much a card-carrying geneticist. My view is that genetics is most important for trying to give us clues as to what might be going wrong in the brain, to understand better what's going wrong in the brain, and then to be thinking about ways in which we might be into, be able to think about the better use of medicines available to us today and the way to make better medicines in the future. But let's not duck the question, because it's an important one. So let's use the example of identical twins. If we look at uh, identical twin pairs and we have one presenting with a clinical diagnosis of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, and we ask, well, what's the diagnosis in the co-twin? And the answer is somewhere between 60 to 80% of the co-twins will have the same diagnosis, but not 100%. So are we thinking about treating an individual who might be at risk but is not going to develop the illness, I think we've got to be very cautious about that. And we've got to be very sure that the treatment really would be entirely harmless and also fully protective. I would rather see us thinking about more intelligent ways of making better medicines and have them available at the first sign of signs and symptoms. So in order to try to dampen down the development of the illness, and perhaps most importantly of all, one of the great problems we have in psychiatry is that the individual that turns up with a diagnosis will be put on the medicine that was last used that seemed to work. And unfortunately, that choice is not always the best choice. So for many patients, not only does it take a long time to establish clearly what their diagnosis is, but also it often takes a long time to find the medicine that's best for them. If we could do that earlier, that would be a huge, huge advantage. That was Professor David Porteous and Professor Stephen Laurie and Cathy from Edinburgh discussing current gaps in knowledge of psychiatry and where science could help patients for the future. Next, we'll be wondering if researching resilience might be the next hot thing on the horizon for neuroscience. And we'll be asking, is there an architectural structure that explains what makes us human? 
But first, it's time to take a look at the top stories from this month. I joined PhD student David Weston from Cambridge University. He's been busy sifting through neuroscience research and comes up with his three favourite papers from the month. So the first paper I'd like to talk about has really set the scientific community buzzing. It was published last week in the journal Nature by Louis Parada and his group over in the United States. And the group were able to identify a specific subset of cells growing within brain tumours, a kind of cancer stem cell. And these cells are thought to be responsible for the regrowth of tumours after chemotherapy. How did these scientists actually find out about the new cells? Well, the scientists use a genetically engineered mouse to fluorescently label this subpopulation of cells and track their survival during a course of chemotherapy. And what they found was that while the chemotherapeutic drugs killed some of the cells in the tumour, it failed to kill this subpopulation of cells. And what they then went on to show was that when the tumour regrew, all of the new tumour cells were actually derived from the chemotherapy-resistant cells. So these cells are the parent cells of the new tumour cells. Why do you think this discovery is so critical in our understanding of cancer? The results of the study seem to suggest that there may be a kind of cancer stem cell that could drive new tumour growth. And that's been kind of a controversial idea in the field. But now these cells that have been identified are so important because we might be able to specifically target them with drugs to maybe stop the tumours from regrowing. So this study could have potential implications for the treatment of brain cancers, but also have a knock-on effect for our understanding of other types of cancers that are found in the body too. And your second paper? Yeah, so the next paper I'd like to talk about gives support to the idea that you can learn while you're asleep. And people have long thought that one of the primary purposes of sleep is to consolidate memory, and so cementing information in your mind. But this week, Ken Paller and his colleagues at Northwestern University have shown that this process of consolidation is enhanced if you also learn while you're asleep. So how did Paller test this theory? Well, what he did was he taught 16 volunteers to play two different musical phrases using keys on a keyboard and visual cues from a computer. He then let the subjects go and have an afternoon nap, and when they entered a deep sleep, one of the melodies that they'd been practising that morning was played to them. Now, when the subjects were tested after their nap, they found that the accuracy for both of the melodies was better than before, but more importantly, the accuracy for the melody that was playing while they were asleep was dramatically increased. Let's hope that this kind of enhancement can carry over to other forms of information too. So, moving over to your final paper. Yes, the final paper I'd like to talk about describes what happens to the brain when you learn a second language. Now, a lot of people say that it's easier to learn languages when you're younger, when you're a child, because your brain is much more adaptable. But the authors of the next paper, working at Dartmouth College, show evidence that learning a second language as an adult can make really big changes to the brain. How did the authors of this paper actually measure these brain alterations? Well, they used a technique called diffusion tensor imaging, which is a type of MRI scan that measures the diffusion of water in the white matter nerve tracts of your brain. So the scientists took monthly images of the brains of 27 people, and of those 27 people, 11 were put on an intensive modern standard Chinese language course. And what the researchers found was that the brains of the people learning the new language changed over the nine months of the course compared to the control group. The people who were learning the language showed changes in the areas of the brain associated with language acquisition, as the authors had expected. But they also found that areas of the frontal cortex, the area right at the front of the brain, were also changed. And this really challenges the idea that the adult brain is not adaptable and shows that changes to the brain are important for acquiring new information in the form of learning a new language. Exciting results showing that at any age we can exercise our brains by picking up a new skill, like learning a new language, and that this changes the connectivity 
That last paper was published by Schlegel and colleagues in the Journal of Cognitive Neuroscience. And that was David Weston from Cambridge University with his favourite papers from the month. A little bit more neuroscience news. Are you gleefully gargantuan? If so, it might be in your genes. The stereotype of a rotund, jolly person full of mirth may have biological rationale. Researchers at McMaster University analysed 17,200 DNA samples from people in 21 countries. They found a gene called FTO that is associated with a significant 8% reduction in the risk of depression. This gene is also linked with obesity. And that study published in Molecular Psychiatry. Next, turning addiction treatment on its head. A study published in Psychology of Addictive Behaviours by researchers from Indiana and Wayne State Universities suggests that people with addiction problems are less receptive to processing negative messages than controls whilst assessing risk. So it turns out that instead of trying to convert addicts by highlighting the dangers of drugs due to their brain biology, it might be better to emphasise the benefits of staying clean. Next, unravelling what it means to be human. Published in PLOS Biology, short DNA strands may be key to understanding how humans evolved their higher cognitive functions, like reasoning, flexibility and thinking and planning. Researchers at Mount Sinai School of Medicine looked at the architectural structure of DNA in nerve cells of the prefrontal cortex, so the brain region just behind your forehead, and they compared it between humans and non-human primates. Hundreds of regions throughout the genome showed different 3D helical looping structures. These DNA regions do not code for proteins, which is why they were thought to be junk DNA, but instead determine how the DNA helix packages up into a loop structure. And this may affect how other genes are regulated and expressed, and play a critical role for human brain development. And last up, boosting brain power with a diabetic drug that's already on the market. An FDA-approved drug initially used to treat insulin resistance in diabetes could be used to treat cognition in Alzheimer's disease, according to a study by researchers at the University of Texas Medical School. Published in the Journal of Neuroscience, Professor Larry Denner and colleagues found the anti-insulin resistance drug rosiglitazone also enhances learning and memory by reducing the extracellular signal-regulated kinase, or ERK for short, a protein that's involved in communication between nerve cells. And if you want to find out more about any of these stories, the references are all on our website. That's thenakedscientists.com forward slash neuroscience. Next up, we tackle some of your neuroscience questions. I joined Dr John Rogers from Cambridge University, who has been flexing his brain power to answer your questions about genes in the brain. First up, Nish Nea got in touch via Facebook asking, what makes us more intelligent? Do we know of any specific physical or genetic differences found in individuals who have very high IQs? First of all, it's not just genes that affect intelligence. Uh, It's strongly affected by environment as well as by genetics, uh, and the two of them interact. And a stimulating environment in infancy is certainly important in uh, influencing intelligence. Um, But there do appear to be uh, genes that determine intelligence, uh, but searches for specific ones have not yet come up with very much. In fact, only recently the first such gene was identified, uh, and it just has a small effect on IQ. Uh, If you have a particular version of this gene, uh, it increases IQ by about 1.3 points, uh, which really isn't very much. And this gene is a gene that acts generally in the nucleus to operate on, on expression of other genes, and it seems to affect the size of the brain, so that may be why it's affecting IQ. 
Otherwise, we might expect there will be other such genes which contribute in a rather general way to brain development or to brain function, uh, and there may again be some variants of them uh, which allow for a more effective development of the circuits which integrate and interpret experience within the brain. In addition to general intelligence, as it were, there will also be genes that contribute to specific learning disabilities, and there's been some progress in finding some of those recently. There are some genes which seem to influence the chance of developing dyslexia uh, and also other psychological conditions such as autism. Uh, there are genes which influence the chance of, of developing those. And those tend to be uh, rather rare variants of, of genes um, which uh, affect just a few people uh, but seem to predispose to those conditions in those people. And moving on to the second question, in from Theo Gibson, and he asks, is there any overlap of nervous gene expression with other genes that are expressed in the body? And this is a, a similar type of question, really, to somebody else who's been in touch, Anne Buchanan, who's asking, do we know how many genes are expressed in the brain, and is there an overlap with the genes that are expressed in the body? Well, yes, there are a lot of genes uh, expressed in the brain. Most of the genes are expressed in the brain, and there is a lot of overlap uh, between the expression there and elsewhere in the body. Um, that's largely because the cells in the brain all need the same, as it were, housekeeping functions that other types of cells do. And there are thousands of genes expressed for that purpose throughout the body. And also in the development of the brain, many of the signals that are used are the same as in developing other organs of the body. Um, there are genetic control systems that are used for many different purposes in different organs. Uh, and one reason why the brain has so many genes expressed is that it has so many different types of nerve cells, and so most of these genetic control systems are used somewhere in the brain. But what is unique about the nervous system is the collection of ion channels and neurotransmitters which allow nerve cells to transmit signals and to receive signals. And the genes for these account for many of the genes that are specifically expressed in the nervous system. And last question, Paul Harrington has been in touch and said, I came across something a few months ago about Alzheimer's and leaky blood vessels in the brain. Is this a genetic thing? And if so, might it be reversible? And what are the hereditary factors? So Paul adds that he's got a personal interest as his dad had Alzheimer's. Um, well, yes, there is some pathology around blood vessels in Alzheimer's disease. The main pathology in the brain is that there are abnormal proteins produced and deposited throughout the brain, but one of those is particularly deposited around blood vessels. We don't yet know whether that really makes a significant contribution to, to the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, regarding the, the genetic control of it, uh, yes, there is a gene which has a significant influence on the incidence of Alzheimer's disease. It's called APOE, and people who have a particular version of this, an allele called APOE4, are several times more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease than people with other versions of the gene. However, I have to say, at present, it doesn't seem worth testing for this because there's nothing we can do about it. But it is uh, one more reason why we should generally keep a healthy diet and a healthy lifestyle because the main thing that APOE does is to transport cholesterol into the brain, and there is some evidence that high cholesterol may promote Alzheimer's disease as well as various other ills that may affect us in, in our older years. There are many projects trying to use this kind of research to develop cures or preventions for Alzheimer's disease, and some of these are in clinical trials, but uh, nothing has been very successful as yet. Uh, so at the present, the best advice one can give is to keep uh, intellectually active because uh, it's known that people who are more intellectually active uh, are less likely to develop Alzheimer's disease and to keep a healthy lifestyle, to keep physically active and to try and keep one's cholesterol low. That was Dr John Rogers from Cambridge University taking on your questions about the role of genes in the brain. 
If you've got any burning questions about your brain and the nervous system, then just email them to neuroscience at thenakedscientists.com, tweet us at Naked Neuroscience, or post on our Facebook page, and we'll do our best to answer them for you. And finally, closing this month's show, I find out what areas of neuroscience are keeping a professor excited. I'm Barbara Sahakian. I'm Professor of Clinical Neuropsychology at the University of Cambridge. Well, there's many exciting things about the brain, but I suppose two areas that really excite me is the fact that uh, learning is so fast, that children especially are just programmed to learn and pick up everything and imitate. And I find that really exciting, that the brain is just so essentially programmed to learn new things about the environment and how to interact with it. Uh, the second thing that I'm very excited about is uh, is really resilience in in terms of brain function, because um, you know we go through life and many of us have very unfortunate experiences from time to time, and there are many people who experience uh, really horrific environmental circumstances, and yet we can frequently overcome that. So the emotional brain can be quite resilient in many ways, and I find that remarkable. And I think we need to understand more about resilience and how we overcome these things so that people who, you know, end up unfortunately with post-traumatic stress disorder, we're able to help them and we're able to instill resilience in young people. That was Professor Barbara Sahakian from Cambridge University. That's all for now. We'll be back again next month finding out if you can burn off a hot fudge sundae by just doing a difficult maths problem instead of hitting the treadmill. Plus, we'll be debunking that myth that we only use 10% of our brains. And we'll be discovering exactly why it is that neuroscientists are punching into people's skin. Apparently, it's all in a quest to help prevent the older brain losing its cells. This Naked Neuroscience podcast has been brought to you in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. See you next month to open our minds. Thank you.